0: Hello and welcome to Nevermind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack. Back on the show this time is the professor my podcast stats tells me has been my most popular guest this year, Tim Bale. Welcome, Tim, and no pressure then. (laughs) Thanks very much, Mark. (laughs) Looking forward to it. Um, Tim, you're probably most well known in Liberal Democrat circles for your research into party membership, why people join, why they get active and so on. But you're also an expert on parties in opposition, including an excellent study of Ed Miliband, for example. And I remember at the time I read it, I perhaps slightly cruelly said that the thing that struck me about your study of Ed Miliband was you could take the chapters, rearrange them into a completely different order, and it would still make just as much sense. Which I hasten to add was a comment on him rather than you. As in there didn't seem to be a a narrative arc running through what he was trying to do in his different stages as leader of the opposition and the different stages of the parliament in a way that you can tell a story that runs through Paddy Ashdown or William Hague or David Cameron. Normally, there's a story that runs through the year. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, given that you've got a particular expertise in many ways on leaders of the opposition who fail, (laughs) have you got any thoughts at the moment and any advice even on what makes parties and leaders in opposition successful
1: yeah i mean i think one of the problems in some ways uh for talking about the liberal democrats is of course most of what's been researched and written on this question um tends to have been written on either the labour party or the conservative party Uh, so we might need to um, qualify some of what we say later on in our conversation um, to see whether it does, in fact, apply to uh, the, the Lib Dems. Um, that is such are... an
0: academic's answer, isn't it? I yeah. love the, uh, the, yeah. the verbal footnote.
1: <laughs> I was about to say, though, I think there are some generic things that oppositions, um, you know, do well yeah. and some things that they should avoid doing. And there's a really great book, actually, uh, about how conservative uh, uh, parties uh, in opposition managed to get back into power by Anthony Seldon and, and Stuart Ball. Uh, and in, in, uh, in that book, Stuart Ball comes up with this sort of, uh, I think it's five things that um, opposition parties really, really need to do. And these are sort of generic things that I think are useful lessons for the Liberal Mm. Democrats as well. So the first thing Stuart says uh, an opposition party has to do is is to convey a sense uh, that they have fresh faces, that they have new leadership and in particular that new leadership signals some kind of generational change actually, a real shift away from what the party was doing previously. Uh, he then uh, talks about the need for cohesion, and in some senses that's more obvious, that's unity, mm-hmm. discipline, um, you know, because without that you can't convey a sense of purpose uh, and a sense of effectiveness. Uh, he then uh, puts a premium on visibility, which is mm-hmm. a new uh, distinctive agenda, again signalling a move away from kind of old debates yep. and, and old arguments. Uh, He then talks about what he calls efficiency, which is not just about kind of organizational efficiency, um, but is also very much about having a kind of professional operation uh, in terms of uh, the the media handling uh, of the party. And then finally he talks about adaptability, which is to some extent dependent on traveling a little bit light ideologically in order to be able to grasp the opportunities when they arise. so if you put all those sort of five things together i think you know that's a pretty good recipe uh for for what uh, parties who aren't in government need to do in order to increase their vote having said that i I do think there are a lot of things and we could maybe come on to discuss Mm. those that that parties have to avoid doing
0: what (laughs) strikes me about that list and i suspect it would be wrong to put an equal weight on each of them mm. but the only one of the five and maybe it's the most important was the third one mm. which talked about policy mm. if you think about what gets most discussed during leadership elections and the sorts of questions that you get at hustings and so on they do hugely gravitate around what is the diff- what are the different candidates vision for the future of the country um, and and I guess even if you say that, OK, that might be only one of the five, but it's perhaps the most important, it it does strike me how little attention is given to the other four. So that in terms of a sense of freshness, you know, an obvious question to ask, I guess, in every leadership election is, are you going to change the party's logos, colours and fonts? Yeah, that's a very, almost trivially easy way of beginning to try to give it a bit. It, it, yeah, I, I, I think it's... Um, thinking about it from the Lib Dem perspective I guess one way of looking at those five is our election review report that was recently published highlights the key dynamic at the heart of the party between the president the leader and the chief exec Mm -hmm. and actually of those five maybe one and a half you would say are really down to the leader there's almost an implication that now the leader can drive the other ones definitely but there's almost an implication there that when, uh, say, I was making the comments about Ed Miliband, I shouldn't just have been talking about Ed Miliband, that this is much more about two or three or four other key people driving different elements of the operation. Of course, to some extent, the leader gets to choose them, much more so, mm. I think, probably in Labour and the Tory parties. You know, In the Labour party, their new chief exec appointment seems to have been very much the leader's pick, in a way that being the leader's choice is not always helpful, say, in the Lib Dem. Mm. <laughs> No, and I, think
1: that's a, I think that's a really good point um, about the Lib Dems in the sense that uh, I think particularly when it comes to Liberal Democrats, you do need buy-in uh, from your members in order to be able to do anything because I think the members play a very, very big role. Uh, in the Liberal Democrats much more so actually than they do in the Labour Party to be honest I think the Labour Party always talks a good game about member power but actually if you look institutionally the members can be bypassed quite easily in all sorts of ways And I don't think that's the case in the Liberal Democrats so I think it's it, it's incredibly important not just to realise that it it isn't all about the leader I think you're quite right there um, but that you know that top team in the Liberal Democrats, in particular, has to have a great deal of legitimacy and, and support from the from the wider membership. Otherwise, I don't think you know much of that other stuff really works. And I think you also make a really interesting point about policy. And perhaps one problem for the Liberal Democrats is they are so policy oriented. A lot of Liberal Democrat members, it seems to me, you know, are, are actually really really engaged with policy and that's a good thing mm-hmm. but on the other hand it can lead people to believe that that's the be all and end all uh, you know and if you if you if you change this particular policy uh, that that will somehow do the trick or you lay out a whole new set of policies and that will somehow do the trick when when actually as you quite rightly say that's only part of the mix yeah.
0: and i think it even goes slightly more widely than that so i was doing a um... A zoom call with uh, liberal democrats in part of the west country earlier this week and we were talking about housing policy and the point i made was that one of the big impediments to more housing being built is persuading local communities not to object to planning proposals and so although the traditional way of talking about housing is to get into lots of detail of policy and land banks and Money to help people buy, and does that just drive up the price? You know, there's a whole huge amount of technical policy people really get into. In many ways, it strikes me the housing issue is a very simple political messaging conundrum. And mm. that were housing campaigners to spend more time thinking about how do you persuade people to change their minds and less time on what policy would we wish the next housing minister would change, they might be more successful in a way that I think environmental campaigners get this. that tackling climate change is is certainly requires all sorts of policy changes but there's also a key communications challenge in that and again even um, when it comes to environmental policies lib dems love talking about you know we love talking about the policy stuff we tend to spend not so much time talking about the messaging part of it
1: yeah and i think you know there is a slight tendency on the left or the center left uh, not just in the liberal democrats i'm talking more generally um to see uh, things like messaging, things like communication, things like marketing as rather infra dig because they remind one of the kind of commercialization of the country that to some extent, um, you know, people on the center left are always a little bit uncomfortable with. And therefore they tend to be seen as, you know, if you like superficial in rather a pejorative way, when actually they are much more fundamental than that. And there's no point changing policy if, you know, the messaging mm. around that change uh, isn't uh, absolutely first class. And in order to, to make it first class, you have to get really good people. Mm. And in order to get really good people, you have to pay really good people. Uh, and even that is sometimes a bit of an issue, mm. actually, for, for centre-left parties.
0: Mm. It's, I, th- I think I would have definitely agreed with what you said 15 years ago. The, the bit that I doubt slightly, and there's maybe a fascinating research project to be done by somebody on this, is that I think the reaction to just words like branding, at least in the Lib Dems, has changed massively. Mm. So 15 years ago, sort of an email from an unhappy Lib Dem member referencing branding would be hostile to it as if this is something that is wrong or bad or not helpful now i it's it's all about no we need to improve our branding i think there has been a real shift and i that may partly be that branding is has gone from being a new niche specialism to something that is so broadly talked about and no it may be that i guess i think it's true a lot more people work in marketing for example mm-hmm. in somewhere other than would have 15 years ago it may also um be that just any new niche skill as skepticism and it might also be, and obviously you will know this much better than me, a reflection of a change maybe in the makeup of the demographics of of party membership that it's mm. that it's mm. maybe skewed more heavily now towards people who work in those professions
1: yeah i mean i think obviously party membership as you know we've discussed before uh is primarily a kind of middle class uh, and to use a bit of jargon sort of symbol processing
0: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> um uh niche if you like a lot of members you'll you will be quite right you know work in service industries whether they be private or public and even in the public sector of course now branding is taken mm-hmm. much more seriously that than it used to be so i think yes you make a a really good point there i mean there may still be some sort of underlying resistance um but but you know it, it could well be that things have changed and i think that is a that is a good thing i mean i think for the liberal democrats as well the, the point about cohesion is an interesting one i mean i i think the liberal democrats used to in some ways take pride in the fact that they could disagree with each other mm. Um, you know the the conference really means something, and therefore they could have a, a a kind of row about this or a row about that and it was healthy and mm. um, I think to some extent that is still true i mean i I think people like to you know believe that parties are honest enough mm. to you know be able to to debate mm. something, but you know there's a limit to that you know in, in order to be seen as a kind of professional uh, operation, a kind of competent operation you know th- those arguments have to be. If not completely kept to a minimum, then at least you know, in reasonably civilly and then be over if you like. And the party needs to, to, to move on. Yeah. Although, having said that, I don't think the Liberal Democrats now have the reputation that they did have mm. uh, for kind of falling out with each other over supposedly peripheral issues uh, at their conference. You know, we can remember back sort of 10, 15, 20 years ago, you know, when it was drugs, for example, yeah. you know, it was the classic. Lib Dem argument to have, and and the newspapers used to try and embarrass the party yeah. uh, by doing that. Well, That's I, I a... would say,
0: in our defence, I think the reason that on that issue we no longer have that reputation is because wider political consensus has moved radically in favour of the old Lib Dem position. <laughs> yeah. I, I wonder also, and this is complete speculation, um, but I wonder also if there is more scope now for internal disagreement within parties if it's handled. know sensibly in the one of the broader trends in intellectual thought almost so in in terms of understanding how organizations function well how people avoid making mistakes and so on everything from airline safety to running multinational companies one of the common trends is that sense of you must avoid groupthink, and people Mm -hmm. must be willing to challenge and so whether it's in a Malcolm Gladwell bestseller or a Tim Harford podcast series or the syllabus on a uh, business school's uh, MA course, just that basic idea that questioning and debating is a good thing because it makes for better decisions and fewer mistakes. Feels yeah. like it's a very widely held view now in a way that, it, again, it wouldn't have been 15, 20 no, years. Ago. I
1: mean, I, I think that's a really good point. And actually that moves us on quite nicely to to, to something I was saying at the mm. beginning, you know, that you can have a, a series of, um, things that parties should do but also you can think about a series of things that the parties should avoid doing mm. and, and you know, top mm. of that list in some ways is groupthink. If I think about uh, the Conservative Party in opposition you know, uh, something else I've, I've written about reasonably extensively I think you know, they had a real problem uh, after they lost in 1997 with groupthink mm. uh, they really you know, did not allow people um, in and around the leadership um, to disagree with the line that, for example, William Hague uh, will, was taking, um, because it was seen to be somehow a betrayal of the party's values uh, and not just of the leader himself, uh, and that meant that whenever anybody questioned the direction of the party, mm-hmm. either privately or publicly, uh, they were seen not as you know a sort of valuable bit of grit in the mm-hmm. the, the oyster, as it were, but was seen as an apostate you know, someone who, who had to be, you know, completely kind of rejected and, and you know, sent into outer darkness. Uh, and that meant that the party, you know, didn't really come to terms with the challenge it was facing. Uh, so I think groupthink is a, is a real problem. And that there are, you know, there are a whole bunch of other things um, that the Conservative Party in particular, uh, I think, did, which, for me, anyway, are kind of don'ts <laughs> for mm. political parties. So that, that would be one of them.
0: Just um, before we go on to the next one, I'm not sure I dare ask this question, but let's go for it. Is there any groupthink that it strikes you, the Lib Dems, that we are particularly prone to? Not sure. I'm, I'm metaphorically hiding behind my sofa now for what you're going to um,
1: say. Well, uh, I mean, I think there was a degree of groupthink perhaps about uh, Europe. Mm. Uh, not uh, you know, not um, to the extent, you know, uh, of of needing to suggest that somehow Brexit was okay, I'm not. I'm not by any means suggesting that, but I, I think perhaps the party's strategy uh, before the last general election, uh, you know, uh, of kind of majoring on Europe, of especially decision, perhaps you know, to, to suggest that it would be best to, you know, reverse Brexit without another referendum, uh, for example, that although that was debated that that pretty soon became a consensus that was quite difficult I think for people for, to depart from publicly anyway so perhaps perhaps there's something in that yeah. Um,
0: and yeah and certainly that's something that our election review report goes into I, 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 I think one of the lessons there for the future is that you need to have research about what the public are thinking and again this partly goes back to a point you made earlier Tim that quite often in the past people have viewed listening to the opinion polls and so on as somehow being wrong and undermining democracy and Mm. not how Mm. democracy should work. Mm. And actually, I'm increasingly of the view of the exact opposite, which is anyone involved in politics very rapidly becomes quite detached from how the rest of the world sees things. And Mm. so there's a real value that actually makes democracy better in terms Mm. of regularly being reminded what a group mm. of seven people in a focus group in Watford last night thought. And, and that, that, it's not pulling us away from democracy, it's bringing us back to what the public think. But, no, um, well,
1: I mean, I think, you know, for the Liberal Democrats in particular, who do place, you know, a great deal of faith in some senses in people and, and in people's rationality and, you know, in local decision-making, now actually listening to people, it seems to me, is a very important mm. thing to do. And, and I'd add to that, actually, Um, One of the things the Conservative Party, I think, got wrong um, after 1997, and I think it's, you know, a potential problem for the Liberal Democrats, um, partly because, you know, their strategy is to build out from local elections Mm. to national elections, um, was to um, take the results of second order elections, in other words, local elections and European elections, um, as Uh, a superior guide to how the country was feeling than opinion polls, Mm. Um, you know, and the Conservative Party took comfort from the fact that it did quite well in the European elections in, I think, 1999, it took comfort from Mm. the fact that it sometimes, um, you know, did actually quite well against Tony Blair in local elections, Um, but if you looked at the opinion polls, the national opinion polls, they were still way, way behind and in really, really big trouble. And I, I think, you know, parties have to be very careful that they don't choose, as it were, the results of real elections over the results of opinion polls. Because actually, although it's very difficult, I know for people to believe it, um, you know, uh, 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 1,200 people answering questions can obviously... can you know, sometimes anyway, give you a much better idea of what the country is really thinking than elections which involve possibly millions of people. Mm. Because, of course, the the people who turn out at local elections and European elections are not Mm -hmm. (laughs) a particularly good uh, cross-section of the country and not even a very good cross-section of the electorate.
0: If I can speak up for a moment in defence of my weekly blog posts about council by-election results (laughs) uh, when they're on, I I, I think I'd agree generally with what you've said. I think the two exceptions are that, for example, if we take the example of council by-elections, is one is they can show you where there is variation in the political geography Mm -hmm. within the headline numbers. And that's particularly important for understanding smaller parties because... In fact, take the nineteen ninety seven Lib Dem election result: vote share down, number of seats massively up. Mm-hmm. So the headline figure is not the only guide. Now, it I I don't think any, any I don't think have we've ever had a case where one of the top two parties in a general election has had their vote share go in one direction and their seats massively go in the other direction. Mm-hmm. I think that is a feature of smaller parties. Mm-hmm. Um, So it can be useful for the political geography bit. I think it can also be useful for an understanding of the strength of the grassroots um, organisation. And so one thing that was notable in the the little smattering of council by elections we had between the December general election and coronavirus putting them on hold was that there wasn't a massive tail-off in Lib Dem support. And Mm. that's also reflected in... Uh, party membership so party membership is at a record level for this yep. time in a parliament never been higher um and what that suggests i think that had the may elections gone ahead the party would have done quite decently we'll never know for sure and of course uh, you're right that that wouldn't necessarily have been a pointer to national elections but but a, but again if you're a party that in part has to struggle for relevance a good set of may local election results this year i think would have shifted the political consensus a bit in terms of people thinking oh yeah the Lib Dems you know flopped in the second half of last year but are still clearly around in a way that we still have to actually make that case um and that's that that's that's harder without something like the local elections to do yeah. it um,
1: I, I think you make two really good points there actually and, and you know added to that and in some senses related to one of the points you made is that of Obviously, success in second order elections in local elections is incredibly important for morale and for building mm, the party yeah, at the local absolutely. level. Um, so I, I do think that you know that that does make a lot of sense. Um, I mean there are other kind of don'ts um, you know from the Conservative experience that you know may well apply to to the Lib Dems as well and and one of those is um, to Assume that because you yourselves know that uh, Party X or party Y is fundamentally evil Mm. or Fundamentally useless that in the end the electorate will wake up to that fact Mm. as well (laughs) Uh, And that all you have to do is in some senses wait for the pendulum to kind of swing back to you or wait for common sense to prevail etc and therefore um, that can lead to a, a degree of, kind of complacency and passivity, which a, a party just simply cannot afford. And I think that's something the Conservative Party slipped into. Um, even in 1997, despite the huge election defeat, uh, they kind of assumed that uh, you know, people would wake up to uh, you know, how terrible Tony Blair was and how he didn't have a real grip on his party. Uh, and that pretty soon they come running back to the Conservatives. Uh, and, of course, that meant that in some ways they wasted two or three years before they finally understood yeah. that that wasn't going to happen. So uh, I, I think when you have, a, you know, emotions running high about the other parties, and they, they do run very high at the moment, uh, I, I think, you know, that, that idea that somehow because you know um, that they're wrong, uh, the electorate will, you know, sooner or later, wise up to that fact is actually a dangerous illusion.
0: Yeah. Um, so that was the first of your things that opposition shouldn't do. Should we move on to number two on the list? <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the the second one is is about not staying in your comfort zone, uh, mm. and that has to do with not majoring exclusively on the issues that you think um, have always played well for you, uh, and forgetting that you still have to you know talk about think about even make policy on uh, those issues that uh, are perhaps you know owned by other parties but won't go away because they're seen as very very important to the public so for example um if we if we take the the lib dems i mean clearly in some ways europe plays well for the lib dems okay it's the issue that they're most at the moment associated with uh, but the fact is that however important Europe is, the economy is also going to be mm-hmm. pretty important. Public services are also mm-hmm. going to be important. Uh, so uh, it therefore won't be enough, if you like, just to talk about the one thing that you want to talk about, because pound to a penny, the media and the other parties are going to want to talk about their issues as well. So you have to have some kind of policy, some kind of response, some kind of view on those issues. And you have to admit that you know, those issues will be in play as well as the issues that you want to talk about. And that's, it, I, I, I think, incredibly important. I say that because the Conservatives, during the late 1990s and early 2000s, realised uh, that, you know, they, they couldn't really um, compete with the Labour Party as they saw it on the economy and public services, and therefore majored on Europe, uh, majored on immigration. Mm. Uh, because those were the points of contact, if you like, with the the electorate. But the fact was that those issues, immigration in Europe at that time anyway, simply just weren't as important to the public as the other issues. Uh, And even if um, the Conservative Party's um, positions on public services and, and on the economy weren't particularly popular they still had to talk about them Mm. they still had to engage on those issues otherwise it looked as if they they just weren't in the game Mm. if you like uh, uh, and were simply you know banging on about what interested them most so you know that's another uh Mm. don't if you like
0: and there's a little quip that i can't remember who said it but i know ed and I used it in 101 ways to win an election. That it's not what you say about the issues, but it's what the issues say about you. <laughs> yeah. So, it's just, you know, the, the the issues that you choose to talk about are very powerful in terms of the picture mm. they paint, almost it... regardless of what you're saying on them. And yeah. there was a really good example of this with one of the very few Lib Dem MPs who won in '97 and then lost in 2001 is that one of his final campaign newspapers had an inside page spread with addressing issues like abortion and euthanasia. And the position they were staking out on those issues was not unpopular, I think, with their constituents. The issue much more was the fact that those were the issues they were choosing to talk yeah. about, um, yeah. and therefore a sense of they're a bit peripheral, they're not in... Yeah. In, you know, in, in in the main game of what most mattered to people's mm. lives at the time. Um, mm. Okay, number two. On to number three. Uh,
1: number three, uh, in no particular order, as they say, is <laughs> is not getting stuck ideologically. So you yeah. know, realizing you know that actually the world changes, and to some mm. extent, you have to change with it. And whatever was the kind of recipe for electoral success a few years ago. Isn't necessarily the the recipe for success now. Uh, And I I think, you know, again, to to use the conservatives as an example, um, they became, uh, I I think, completely obsessed with, you know, the sort of Thatcher recipe um, and forgot the fact that it, it, you know, wasn't really relevant anymore in the late 1990s and Mm. early 2000s. But they saw it as, if you like, almost um, like a biblical text you know and to depart from that uh, was as I already you know suggested you know apostasy um and 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 you know that made them look old-fashioned it made them look as if they were stuck in a rut stuck in the past and I think it's incredibly important for parties to as it were own the future rather than obsess about the past um, and you know what worked uh, ten years ago, fifteen years ago, isn't necessarily what's going to work now, and it might not even be relevant now because society has changed so much. Um, not so sure that that's a huge problem for the Lib Dems because I think they have a more, you know, as it were, flexible view mm-hmm. of society anyway.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but I, I think you know one needs to be very, very careful, um, particularly I guess. And you know, let's. Let's um let's talk about Brexit. Let's use the, the, the word. I mean, you know, it's happened. Uh it's it's not over because obviously we're still in this transition period. Um, you know, we haven't agreed a, a, a free trade arrangement with the EU. We may never do so, etc. But it's happened. Uh, and you know, the, the party needs to be very careful, I would say anyway, not to be uh absolutely you know typecast in this kind of you know Ramona's hoping to rejoin um, position Uh, it's still obviously incredibly important our relationship with Europe but it can't proceed on the basis of you know um, wishing we could go back wishing we could turn back time
0: Uh, and I I wonder if there's a lesson there from when Britain crashed out of the ERM in 1992 Hmm. Um, because I think one of my just sort of. Rules of thumb, I might even call it an iron law of politics, is that voters notice much less than politicos expect. Oh. But the things they notice, they remember for a lot longer. Mm-hmm. And 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 the reason I picked ERM as an example was the damage it did to the Tories' reputation for economic competence lasted for best part of a couple of decades. Mm-hmm. And Labour repeatedly returned to that theme very successfully under Tony Blair in particular, but they didn't return to it in the context of arguing that Britain should rejoin the exchange rate mechanism. And, and I wonder if there's a little bit of a parallel here for the Liberal Democrats that we can continue to be pro-European and internationalists and argue for that, but it doesn't necessarily mean the best way to do that is to relitigate the particular thing that happened before. And I suspect that had Labour spent the years after 1992 campaigning for Britain to rejoin the ERM, they would have been massively less successful. Um, yeah. I also think it's a shame that quite a few years later they didn't actually then move on to thinking about how to integrate more closely with Europe, rather than floating the idea of referendums and all of that. But. Um, but but, uh, but I, 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 I think the reason I mention that is I think it is quite often a mistake that people make to say, oh, that was everyone's bored with that or everyone knows that. Let's not talk about that. I think the trick much more is to keep to the same themes, but to find different ways that express them that are relevant to the particular context, particularly as one of the very few things people do know, many people know about the Lib Dems now is that we're pro-European and there is actually an opportunity there. It's also a trap, I think, for the reasons you said, but I think there's an opportunity too.
1: Mm, yeah, no, I mean, I think that's spot on, and that's a lovely counterfactual about Labour and the RF. ER, mm. actually. I think, I think you're absolutely right about that, yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm
0: fascinated by that 1992 in general at the moment because mm. it, it could be such a parallel to 2020. So 1992, uh, fresh out of the Tories winning a fourth general election in a row, all of the talk was about, are the Tories going to be in power forever? Are the opposition parties doomed? Do the opposition parties maybe need to do an electoral pact to have any chance in the next election? There was a great book published calling Turning Japanese? Question mark mm. As in, was Britain turning into Japan? A democracy, but with one party that always won. Within a few months, cataclysmic political event shattered the Tory reputation. The Tories never really became popular you know significantly sustained popular then for 15 years or so Mm -hmm. you know Mm. after that and with 2020 well remember how it felt at the beginning of this year with boris johnson flush from a big election victory and i do wonder whether the combination of coronavirus and dominic cummings might mean we end up looking at 2020 similar to 1992 um especially because the thing about they'd be interested to see what your take is on whether people will remember or be moved by Dominic Cummings in a few years time. But it does strike me that the just absurdity of, of things like I got in the car to take a drive to test my eyesight. That's the sort of thing I can imagine when Michael Ashcroft publishes a book after the next election explaining the result based on what people said in focus groups. I can just imagine that being the sort of thing that people will still remember. And will hold against the Tories because it speaks really powerful to one of their traditional weaknesses about are they you know, elitist and just just for themselves and, and not for all of us and so on. So it may turn out to be completely wrong. And in six months time, only the likes of you and me can remember who Dominic Cummings is. But I do wonder if we're running through a political equivalent of 1992 at the moment.
1: Well, there are some spooky parallels, aren't there? Because I think Black Wednesday occurred 23 weeks uh, I think it was after the, the election. Dominic Cummings is 23 weeks.
0: Oh, after really? it oh, is, is conspiracy theory, conspiracy theory, spooky. Theory.
1: Um, I mean, I, I think, I think you know, you, you may be right. And I, I certainly think you're right about the impact of these stories which cut through. They're very mm. often personal. Mm. Um, you know, they're very often visual. Um, you know, and I, I mean, even to take a recent example, Gordon Brown and the bigoted woman. I mean, Mm -hmm. that was repeated back again and again and again in in election focus groups. Uh, Of course, that occurred during an election. One thing I would say is that there is this kind of conventional wisdom that, well, this won't really matter because, you know, we're only, you know, a few months into the Conservatives' term, the election isn't, you know, until Mm -hmm. 2024, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, the research um, from, you know, election experts uh, does indicate that, things that happen early on in a government's life, if they're bad for the government, tend to, you know, set hard and tend to um, create a narrative that then becomes very, very difficult for the government to actually uh, turn around. And that's exactly what happened in Black Wednesday in 1992.
0: Yeah. Um, Can I just digress definitely. slightly into the bigoted woman example? Because mm. I've always been a bit skeptical about how much impact it had. Mm-hmm. On the basis that if you look at the headline voting intention opinion polls, you know, a, a, a point I often like making is you know, draw, draw a graph of the headline voting intention opinion polls and then try and place on it certain key events. And there are a lot of events that in conventional wisdom and political news coverage are meant to be seismic. That it's really hard to look at the graph and figure Mm. where they occurred. Yeah. Um, Now, I mean, one argument I guess is that that's fundamentally the wrong approach. That that's not how crises like that, or you know, reputation-changing events like that, play out. But um, what's the reason that you sort of, you know, pick the bigoted woman thing as an example of something that? Well, simply
1: because, simply because it's 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 visual, it's personal. Mm it's something that you know people just it locks into people's memories and I think you're right about its impact on the, on the, the election in 2010 but I think what you find is that it's still being repeated um, in focus groups or it was still being repeated in focus groups you know after that election you know lots yeah. of people can remember Gordon Brown and the bigoted woman because it speaks to this idea You know, promoted by the the kind of populist right that um, you know the centre left has this kind of elitist view, Mm. treats people like fools, etc., etc. So I I think you know there are a few of these things that, as as you you know suggested, you know lock into people's Mm. uh, kind of folk memories, really, Um, and and you know they find it difficult to um, to to forget them. And I mean, 1992 uh, again clearly you know one of the problems was the government lost control of the uh, the economy uh, you know there was a big devaluation they spent billions of pounds trying to save the pound uh, unsuccessfully etc but what a lot of people will remember and did remember was norman lamont coming outside on that dark evening mm um you know to to admit that you know they they'd had to leave the exchange rate mechanism and it's the kind of visuals and the stories you
0: know that, it looks that like a ate. crisis doesn't it if you didn't yeah. again if you if you took the photo and didn't know when it was taken it looks like you <laughs> yeah. know something has gone badly wrong uh, yeah and, same and with it's Gordon wonderful. Brown
1: in the, in the in the in the in the radio studio yeah, with with head, it, in head, head in
0: hands exactly yeah, yeah. um And actually, the other much more niche parallel with 1992 was I remember in the immediate aftermath, the efforts that some in the Tory party went to to try and blame the German central bank for what happened, that it wasn't really their fault. And again, it feels like there are some parallels this time with the Dominic Cummings defence. But I think why I suspect the Dominic Cummings issue may really lock in people's folk memory is that... In, in that sense, trying to blame the Germans in 92, I mean, was misguided and unsuccessful, but was almost an, a reasonable bit of political mm. sort of debate. You know, it was a reasonable, not unreasonable, to say if something's happening in the monetary system, maybe it was another key player that was a afford- fault. I think the use of, by Boris Johnson of the word instinct mm. in his press conference where he defended Dominic Cummings, that, you know, that what Dominic Cummings did was, any, you know, everyone's sort of natural instinct. I think was potentially particularly damaging because for all the rest of us, it's a case of no, we've known that we're not meant to follow our instincts. Mm-hmm. It it, it seems such a out of touch defence. Um, and you know, if I ever return to my previous profession, um, sort of training training people in crisis management, I can easily imagine a really fun thing to do as part of a training day will be to have a practical session where you're told it's Friday evening write the statement for the prime minister to issue. And I think there are a lot that it's it's not actually that hard to write a statement and in which actually you don't even have to sack Dominic Cummings. You know, if you were, you know, if you say he did wrong and you apologize and you urge people to do, you know, I think he, he, it would still have been a bit of a scandal, Mm. but I think that what is really damaging for the Tories is the reaction to it. And particularly mm-hmm. that sense of, oh, no, what he did was reasonable, which just sounds so offensive to people who know, hang on a minute, I know I would like to have done that and I haven't. And now you're telling mm-hmm. me somehow I was wrong for not having done that. Mm-hmm. And then you add the whole, you know, taking, going for a drive to test your eyes as a, just a, a farcical <laughs> sort of. <laughs> yeah,
1: but you But you make a really good point as well when you say that one of the f- reasons that uh, this or, or some other things have damaged political parties are when they to some extent speak to a suspicion about that political mm. party that people already have uh, and in this case obviously it's the you know one rule for them one rule for us uh, mm. you know uh, the conservative party being if you like the, the party of the establishment and the elite mm. uh treating the rest of us like fools and you know that's a sort of underlying suspicion about the, the party that they have to be really really careful uh to to you know to try and stamp on but it's going to be very difficult i think to do that i think you're right
0: yeah um, uh, so penultimate mistake for, for the um, to avoid
1: well um actually let's make this the ultimate one because i think uh it, it, it's the ultimate one in two ways really <laughs> and that is if you elect a leader and you find quite quickly that they simply aren't up to it mm. then you need to make a decision very very quickly that that person has to go and has to be replaced by someone uh who can do the job Uh, and i think in the case of the conservative party after 1997 and one could even argue the labor party after 2010 and indeed after 2015 um and indeed 2016 um they didn't do that Mm. you know the public make up their minds and you will know this probably better than I do, quite quickly about leaders. (coughs) And it is very, very difficult for leaders to actually shift opinions about them once the public has made up their mind. So in other words, it becomes pretty quickly obvious that you have, um, you know, elected Mm -hmm. a dud. And if you have elected a dud, then you need to get rid and you need to get somebody else yeah. uh, uh, as leader as soon as possible.
0: I'm trying to think of occasions when political parties have actually done that. I guess Ian Duncan-Smith, Yeah. really the only example I can think of where ahead of an election, a UK party has said, our leader isn't up to it. Thank yeah. you. Goodbye. Yeah. I guess Ming Campbell in the yeah. Lib although he voluntarily jumped, he mm. sort of falls into that category. Although it was the, you know, there was nearly a general election. Gordon Brown called it off, and then that triggered Ming saying, "Okay, mm. I'm going to, I'm going to go." Um, mm. But it's how, what did the Tories get right? Why, why did they manage to oust Ian Duncan Smith so relatively quickly? Where well, so I mean, often that. <laughs>
1: I relatively quick, yeah, relatively quickly is important to say because he was there for you know, a couple of years mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, really by by that stage, you know, the Conservative Party probably wasn't going to get back whoever the, they, mm-hmm. they picked. Uh, I, I mean, one reason they were able to do it was because they have a system mm-hmm. uh, which makes it much easier to get rid of leaders than other parties. <laughs> um, you know, it, all it takes is a vote of no confidence from the parliamentary party, and then that leader is, is gone. Yeah.
0: Um, That's you know, not the rule in the Labour Party, as we know, only no, too clearly no, in the last it, few years.
1: Exactly, that, that, that isn't. Um, so, I mean, I, I think, you know, there are some sort of structural things that parties can do about that, but it is very, very difficult to do. I mean, you know, it, most parties are actually quite kind of leadership dominated, perhaps less in the Lib Dems but that means that whoever becomes leader gets to appoint all sorts of other people and then they have a kind of Praetorian guard mm. and an infrastructure around them. And the party to some extent, especially if they democratically elected a leader, um, is essentially having to say to the public, we got this wrong, you know, we voted for this person, we made a really bad choice. And, and you know, parties worry about what that says about them if they admit that. Uh, and, and so it is very, very difficult um, to do. Um, And I think there's also, I think parties also worry about, you know, credibility in that Mm. sense, you know, they worry that if they sort of seem to be chopping and changing all the time, then, um, you know, they haven't got the courage of their conviction. So it is a really, really hard thing to do, but it it is a nettle that has to be grasped. Parties find it very difficult to grasp that nettle. But uh, as far as I can see, it, it is... One of the most important things that any party can do, admit that they're wrong and make a change.
0: I mean, given my role in the Lib Dems as the sort of president elected by members, I very much hope I'm not going to have to uh, be part of the nettle grasping team at any point (laughs) in the near future. Um, I mean, I mean, I guess perhaps in the Lib Dems, were we to face that dilemma, it might be slightly easier. In that the grassroots can trigger Mm -hmm. discontent and do things like, in the first instance, you might actually go for, say, calling a special conference rather Mm. than trying to trigger a leadership election. But Mm. the grassroots can trigger discontent in a way that I think what I suspect, certainly in Labour, is one of the problems is that you have a different group of people in Westminster who can maybe try to pull the trigger from Mm. the people who have elected the leader and therefore whether or not the rules formally allow you to pull the trigger or not, and they might not, as in Labour's case, which is one hindrance, but the other is there is then a bit of restraint that you act under and the leader can push back on to say, well, actually, look, these people elected me and so on. So Mm -hmm. this may be yet another case where actually the Liberal Democrat form of internal democracy turns out to be quite helpful, but hopefully we will never have to discover that. But (laughs) on that note, just sort of finally... um, yeah, Liberal Democrat leadership election coming up. If you were a party member and sat in a hustings on a Zoom call, what's the question that you would ask? Because thinking about all the stuff we've talked about, in yeah, it's been really fascinating, Tim. I think almost all of it is stuff that never comes up in hustings. That you know, the big takeaway uh, from from our discussion really is the things that oppositions need to get right and the mistakes they need to avoid. Are things that people very talk about very little in leadership contests. So, if you if you were there on the Zoom call and the chair comes to you, what would what would your question be?
1: Well, I would ask, what do you think are going to be the most uh, important issues coming up in Britain over the next two or three years, and um, where would you like to see the Liberal Democrats? Um, place themselves when it comes to those issues Uh, because i think that in some ways gives uh, an indication of how um, fast someone is on their feet uh, how able they are to uh, as it were predict uh, you know the the things that the public really you know are going to care about uh, and are looking to the next election rather than the last election
0: yeah, I, I, I fear that if that question were asked, you would get answers that play to the audience in the virtual or literal room, mm. uh, and yeah. that you would get a, and it will be interesting to see whether this happens with the real Live Dem leadership mm. contest, but that you will get people wanting to, for example, play up the importance of our pro-Europeanism, because of that's what they think the members want to hear, almost regardless of whether or not privately they think we have to really stick with that mm. and find new ways of vocalising it, or whether mm. privately they think, actually, no, we need to move on from that. And both yeah. of those, I think, are very respectable views. Um, but our, I think one of the challenges that people like me have in terms of how we run the leadership election is to try and tease out some of those things, because there is such a strong temptation to, to play to the room very, you know, in a way that's what democracy is about. know, <laughs> it is, you know, you need to win over the support of, of of the people in the room. And I found certainly in our last leadership election, the two sort of extended interviews I did with the, the two candidates then, Joe and Ed, in a way much more revealing because it's when you hear them on the third or fourth sentence that, that in a way the truth comes out a bit more or the, you know, do they really have a clear, sharp answer to your question? I think any half decent politician will be able to give you the first two sentences of an answer. It's, and you know, coronavirus, environment, economy, it's, it's what, what do they go on to say beyond that? That is. is
1: Yeah. I mean, the other thing to do is obviously to, to ask, you know, what three criticisms do people often make about the liberal Democrats that you think have some validity?
0: Ooh, ooh. What would you do to answer
1: those criticisms?
0: Yeah. It's a bit, I mean, it, quite rightly, the interview question of the, you know, job interview question of the, you know, what's your greatest weakness, (laughs) rather loathed, because it's just such a sort of naff question in many ways. But I think in political hustings, something like, I remember in the Nick Clegg, Chris Hume contest, when I was a member of staff, so we had a staff hustings, Mm. I asked them each what they uh, most admired about the other. And I can't remember exact, exact answers. But what I do remember is how revealing their answers were about their personal Mm. style. So Chris Humes was an unnecessary sort of chippy, sharp elbow type answer. And Nick started weirdly, gratuitously rude towards me and ended up amazingly charming. And I thought both of those really captures the essence of Mm. their their personality. In In a way, it's a shame I can't remember what their exact answers were, but in a way, that wasn't the point. It was the style. So I think the... The semi-trick question definitely has a bit uh, commend it in that respect, and let's hope nobody, n- neither of them, or n- none of our leadership candidates or their camps, uh, <laughs> listen to this, and the, 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 me or a colleague can use your excellent question on them uh, when we get to the leadership contest. That's been absolutely fascinating. It's been really interesting chatting to you once again, Tim. So I think you may well be able to hold on to your accolade as the. <laughs> <laughs> the most popular guest on this podcast um, just as a final quick question you've written lots of books i've written some books uh but let's give the listener a break from telling them they should read stuff by you or me what would be your sort of top tip for another book about british politics
1: well, um, I would obviously recommend uh, a few books that are coming out on the election. Mm-hmm. Um, Britain Votes 2019. Uh, that's what I've actually got a chapter in, but that's not why I'm recommending it, because that will give you a kind of 360 idea right. of the, the, the whole 2019 yeah. election campaign. And that's uh, edited by John Tong, uh, Stuart Wiltshieg and Louise Thompson. Yeah and that's coming out just quite soon. quickly on
0: that I a slight interlude i've just been reading the britain vote 2017 all oh, right volume, yeah. and i think my basic rule of thumb now is you get the most out of those books if you read them after the next election ah. because it's a really okay. fascinating mix of things where people talk about big trends and major shifts mm. and you think no mm. hang on a minute that all just the opposite then happened two years later and yeah. the things where actually they point to trends that were then sustained in a quite different, in many ways. Like I think there's the, a little bit of perspective is, yeah, is really valuable on those things. So really maybe it. read Britain Votes 2019, but in 2025.
1: <laughs> well, maybe, but the, the other
0: book that I would yeah. uh, I would recommend, although it is
1: you know it, it's quite a heavy read i mean it's a political science book but um you know you may be able to find a summary of it somewhere written by either of the authors It's the politics of competence parties public opinion and voters by jane green and, and will jennings um you know that is a comparative study uh, it goes across decades etc and it and it points to the fact that although you know, we're very into the idea that values voting mm. has kind of replaced uh, what political scientists call valence voting, which mm. is all about sort of competence yeah. and management, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Actually, you know, competence, strength, uh, and working with issues that the public care about uh, are still really, really important. Mm. And we mm. don't want to, uh, I think, uh, run away with the idea that now it's all about culture. Uh, and not really yep. very much about good governance, because they indicate actually you know good governance helps a great deal.
0: Mm. yeah, and will and Jane are both well worth following on Twitter as well. So in Absolutely. addition to including both those books in the show notes, I'll include both their Twitter accounts uh, also um, and it is in fact on my reading list as well. I've not quite not quite got to it yet, but I will definitely yeah. make sure that I do. Um, in addition, uh, people can find Tim on Twitter at prof tim bale myself on at mark pack and this podcast on at bar chart podcast and if you like listening please do tell others about this podcast go on send a friend an email now thank you very much again tim and thank you everyone for listening